with our Ask Anything series. And we've asked, you guys put forth, uh, put 10 questions to us that you wanted to cover in a series. And we're now all, all the way down to number three. So we're doing a countdown from number 10 down to number, number one. And so today is the question, how do I know God's will? And so what I did this, this past week, I read this, uh, this short book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. And it's a liberating approach to finding God's will. And so very, very helpful. And so this talk is based off of that book. And I want to talk to you just briefly about the cultural situation that we find ourselves in today. And I have a couple of stats for you on the screen here. Um, All the way back in 1960, so 53 years ago, uh, by age 30, here's what happened. 77% of women and 65% of men had completed adult transitions. What I mean by that is uh, leaving home, finishing school, financial independence, getting married, and having a child. The men didn't have children, of course, but the women did. And uh, and so so back in 1960, almost like eight-tenths of the women and almost seven-tenths of the men had completed these transitions by the age of 30. Now, fast forward 40 years, by the year 2000, here's what we have. By the year 2000, by age 30, only 46% of women and 31% of men have completed these transitions. So we're on a, on a steep downturn when it comes to people growing up and completing these transitions in adulthood. And so I think some of this results from the high divorce rate and people are just really skeptical about marriage and commitment and just... Their parents went through divorce, and they think, I don't want to find the wrong person, so I'm going to delay things as long as possible and wait and wait and wait. And so that's delaying this kind of settling down that we um, aren't seeing as much of. But also, I think part of it is because even among Christians, people have this idea that there's like this magic map somewhere up in heaven that's your life, and you've got to figure out what that is exactly and so people, like even Christians, become very, very indecisive when it comes to making decisions and, and expecting, it's like they expect God to put a sign in the sky for what they're supposed to do for what school should I go to, what career should I choose, and who should I marry. And so I think part of it is a result of even Christians having this like false view of what God's will is supposed to look like. In fact, in the book, the writer says, Our search for the will of God, listen to this, our search for the will of God has become an accomplice in the postponement of growing up, a convenient out for the Christian floating through life without direction or purpose. I mean, just think about that. We see this in our culture, do we not? We see this in our culture. We see throughout, even among Christians, we see this this idea that, you know, I just don't know what God's will is for me. I just don't know what I'm going to do. I just don't know. I just don't know. And we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And in reality, it can be an excuse for laziness or just simple lack of direction. And Christians tend to over-spiritualize this, don't we? I'm just waiting for God's will. It's like, well, you know, you're, you're 40 and you don't have a job yet. And you might want to look at that um, possibility. So I want to look at a couple of uh, ways that we see God's will in the Bible. The first way we see God's will in the Bible is what I call his sovereign will. This is what God allows. Anything that God allows to happen on the earth 
is his sovereign will. It's under the reign of his sovereign will. So there's nothing, even when you and I see evil and suffering, we can't look at it and say, God didn't know about that, or God wasn't aware of that. Now, for many people, that's the problem, right? They see it and they go, well, yeah, God can't be good if he allows these things to happen. God can't be a loving God if he allows that to happen. But what you have to understand is in Scripture, we see this idea that God's sovereign will, anything that he allows to happen on the face of the earth, is still under his sovereign will. It's still under his rule and his reign. And it might not always seem like that, but in reality, it is. We see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I told a story a while back of birds that like to crash into my living room windows. Remember that story? And I've got these massive windows. And occasionally, especially in summertime, birds will dive bomb my windows and smack into and break their necks and die at the foot of my house. This happens. And I want you to know, not one of those birds dies, falls, outside of the sovereign will of God. Not one. And if birds, listen, if birds are that invaluable and worthless in our minds, and yet God knows in his sovereignty what's going to happen to them, how much greater does he know what's going to happen with your life? His sovereign reign applies to birds, it applies to the hairs of your head, it applies to everything. All of us are under his sovereign reign and his sovereign rule. And if there's any question about that, listen, listen. If there's any question about how God uses even evil and suffering, and it's still under his rule and his sovereign reign, think about the cross. Look at the cross. The most heinous evil act ever committed in history. Humans killing a perfect Jesus, a person who had never sinned. And yet somehow that was God's sovereign will. His sovereign will. He allowed it to happen. The writer once again says this. He says, shocking as it sounds, the most heinous act of evil and injustice ever perpetrated on the earth, the murder of the Son of God took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. That's one of those things that you just, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. That yes, it was an evil, horrific act, and yet God used it to save mankind for those that would place their faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. And yet somehow, God, as you think about your life and some of the mess in your life happening even right now, you've got to understand that even that stuff is under the sovereign rule and reign of Christ, and God can work it together for good. It doesn't mean that it is good, because sin's not good. But God has a way of redeeming things and turning things that are, are fallen and broken and turning them into redemption and completion and wholeness. So that's his sovereign will. Then we come to his perfect will. Another way we see God's will in the Bible, his perfect will. This is what God desires. This is, if we, people say things like, well, you know, if we lived in a perfect world, here's how things would be. So think in those terms. This is anything that God desires. 
His perfect will. Now, if His sovereign will is how things are, His perfect will is how things should be. It's how things are supposed to be. So, here's what you and I cannot do, though. We can't approach life by saying, well, you know, I mean, if, if uh, I'm going to go out and, and murder someone, and if God allows me to do it, then it was obviously His will, Right? And so we, we can't think that way because certain things obviously are sin, but under his sovereign reign and rule, he allows people to make sinful choices, but his perfect will, his desire, is that they not make sinful choices. Let me say it this way. His sovereign will allows sin, but his perfect will demands that he judge sin. You catch that? His sovereign will allows and permits people to make sinful choices, but his perfect will demands that he judge that same sin. So you've got to see how his, his sovereign will and his perfect will kind of work together here. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We saw this verse last week as well. So there's, there's, this, there's this desire that God has for everyone to follow after him but he still allows people to make sinful choices in the midst of that under his sovereign rule and his sovereign reign. But there's a third way that you and I talk about God's will that doesn't apply to either one of these, and this is what in the book he calls God's will of direction. These are the questions like, okay, what school am I going to go to? Who am I going to marry? What job, what career am I going to have? And the unfortunate thing for you is that all these decisions come back to back to back in the next like 10 years for many of you, right? And so I know you're sitting there waiting with bated breath wondering what in the world is God's plan for me? And this is the way in which many of you think of when you hear the term God's will. But I also think this is where Christians can get confused easily. Because the question is, does God have some secret magical map with your name on it up in heaven where it's got this little magic map on it, and he's up there looking at it, and he's looking down at your life, and he's looking at you, and as you decide, okay, should I go to um, UT, or should I go to A&M? Now, for many of you, that's an easy choice, right? You know where you want to go. But is God up there looking at that map and saying, okay, I hope he doesn't make the wrong choice here. Dang it, he chose UT, Right? And then God says, well, not only did he choose the wrong school, but now he has to watch bad football for the next four years. But just to be even-handed, some might say, the Aggies would say, well, I'm sorry, the Longhorns would say, well, his perfect will for everyone is to go to UT, but because his sovereign will allows sin, some will choose to go to A&M, right? That's how some might think. You cannot approach, listen, you can't approach Scripture, you can't open up this book and ask questions like, where should I go to school? Now, there might be some wise and unwise choices there. Like, if you want to be a farmer, you probably shouldn't go to NYU, right? Not a lot of farmers coming out of NYU in Manhattan, right? But the, so there's, some, there's some wisdom to be used here, but you can't open this book and see the story where Elisha 
you know, God calls some bears to kill some people when Elisha's standing there, and you can't sit there and go, I guess I'm supposed to go to Baylor, right? You can't do that. This book is not meant to be used in that way. And so one question this guy asked that I love in the book, he says, why do we fret about the will of God like it's some nuclear warhead pointing at our future happiness? Many of us see the will of God. We see it as like, if I just make the wrong decision about what school to choose, what school to go to, then God's going to blow up my entire life. And that's how we tend to, to view things. And so what I want you to get this morning is this. Listen very carefully. If you are submitting your life to his perfect will and his sovereign will, God's will of direction will take care of itself. If you are submitting your life to his perfect will and his sovereign will, his will of direction will take care of, take care of itself. With that, I want you to go ahead and discuss the first four questions at your tables. Each table should have a discussion sheet. If you don't have one, there's one up here in front of me. Go ahead and discuss. Just one to four. All right, we'll have some more discussion here at the very end. But when I, when I came into the junior high service a few minutes ago, Tim Cartwright, our junior high pastor, just went to Rwanda last week with Chase Bowers, our missions pastor, and Tim was showing pictures on the screen of kids up here from Rwanda, and there were about 50 orphans in one church in Rwanda that Tim showed on the screen. And as I was thinking about that in relation to this message, God's will, think about this. Most of the questions and decisions that you and I fret over and think about, things like, what college am I going to go to? Who am I going to marry? What career am I going to have? When you, think, when, you, when you take yourself out of the Western mindset, Western civilization, and put yourself in the mindset of where Tim and Chase were this past week, for many of the people that Tim and Chase saw this past week, it was, their questions are, am I going to eat today? That's their questions. And that's what they're wrapped up in. It's not what purposeful career am I going to have so I can feel great about myself. That's not the questions they're asking. They're asking, is mom going to die from the disease that she has? Is dad going to make it past 35? Am I going to eat tomorrow? That's the questions they're asking. And so put ourselves over here in, in first world, United States of America, Texas, where there's wealth, Everyone has a decent, not everyone, I know everyone, they're still suffering in poverty. There obviously is here in the States. I'm not saying that's not the case. But for the most part, those in the room here, you're not thinking like that. You have other sources of anxiety. And so if that's you, I want you to look at this passage, Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 27. Here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He makes a command to not be anxious. Doesn't that sound kind of strange? Most of us think of anxiety and worry as just something that happens to us. We can't control it. And yet Jesus is saying, no, don't be anxious for your life. This is a command, meaning that you can actually obey it. Then he says, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. So this is a culture that probably is worried and anxious about what they're going to eat and about what they're going to drink. They're not living in Western civilization America. There really is a concern about, I'm not sure what I'm going to eat tomorrow. And then it says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can can add a single hour to his span of life? You ever ask the question, what is it exactly that anxiety accomplishes? What does it really add to my life? If I'm going to worry about something, what does it really add to my life? I would say that it actually can subtract hours from your life. People have shown that the more worrisome and anxiety-laden that you are, that leads to heart problems. And so worry and anxiety can actually subtract hours from your life. It does not add anything to your life. Look at verse 33. Skip down. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this is it. You seek first the kingdom of God. You seek first his sovereign will. You seek first his perfect will, and God's will of direction is added to your life. It's it's an extra gracious blessing that God gives to us. All these things, all the things that you're concerned and worried about, all these things will be added to your life. And here's the thing. I know you're going to think, well, Okay, what about the person that dies prematurely? I understand that question. But God's provision, God's provision does not fail, even in the midst of that. Even in the midst of tragedy, God's provision doesn't fail ultimately. Does it? And he says in verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its is its own trouble. And so when you seek his kingdom, his perfect will, his sovereign will, everything else takes care of itself. And if you submit to his perfect and sovereign will, his will of direction will take care of itself. Look at Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you ever need a passage on the will of God, this is the one that you need to read. For this is the will of God, it's your sanctification. He's saying it's your spiritual growth. That is the number one thing that we should all be concerned with. The number one thing, your sanctification, your spiritual growth. Once you become a believer in Christ, we believe that you are fully justified. You have right standing before God, right legal standing before God. He sees you as perfect if you're a believer in Christ. But from that point, you grow into Christ-likeness not to gain salvation, but because you are saved. We call this sanctification. And so God's will for you is is your sanctification. That is the number one thing you should be concerned about. This can happen at Baylor. It can happen at A&M. It can happen at UT. It can happen at whatever school you go to. This can happen, and this needs to happen if you're a believer in Christ. It is the most important aspect of his will for you. Now, I want to show you a story in Scripture that I read recently that you might not think of in relation to God's will. It's all the way over in Ezra chapter 1. If you can't find it, it should be on the screen here in a second. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And the background here is that the Israelites have been, they've been captured and taken away from Israel by the Babylonians. And then Persia comes along, different empire, and, and, and takes over the Babylonian empire. And Cyrus, the Persian emperor, decides to do something a little bit differently. Instead of oppressing the Israelites, 
He decides to be their friends. He decides to say, look, I'm going to let you guys go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. In fact, I'm going to help you do it. And so he decides to let them return back. And so it says in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so, so God stirs up Cyrus, this foreign emperor, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 5. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Sometimes God just stirs people up to do something for his will. And there's a mystery to it. And there's this feeling that I cannot rest until I have done what I feel called to do. And so God stirs up Cyrus here, a, a really kind of a pagan emperor. And then God stirs up the hearts of the Israelites because of what God's done in the life of Cyrus. There are people in this room that God has stirred people up in this room to do certain things for his kingdom. Many of you know that the Ronslabans are looking at adopting from the Ukraine. God stirred them up to do that. Many of you have felt stirred up every summer to do impact. And there are certain kids that sort of just reach out to you and, and you think about, when you think about impact, you think about that one kid you had last year that prayed to receive Christ. And God uses those things to stir you up to do more and more things for his kingdom. And so there's an aspect of this that's mysterious, and I don't want this to sound formulaic this morning, but I do want to give you a sort of point-by-point point finding God's will. It's not a formula. It's more like just a guide for you, a wisdom guide for you. But I also don't want you to miss the fact that part of this is mysterious, and sometimes God just stirs you up to do stuff. And you feel like, I can't rest until I have done what God's called me to do. For me, that was uh, going to seminary. I mean, there was no logic in my mind that thought, I want to go to do more school after I finish my four-year degree. Like, that was not on my radar whatsoever. Believe me. Writing papers, woohoo, you know. And, but somehow, within a three-week time span, it was like God just stirred me up and said, no, yes, this is confirmation. You're supposed to go and do this. And I was like, I can't imagine not doing that. Like, I, it wasn't like a choice of, should I choose A or should I choose B? Eeny, meeny, miny. That's not how it worked out for me. It was, I, I'm doing this. I know God's calling me this direction. And I'm glad that he did. And so there is some mystery here. But I do want to give you kind of a guide here on, on how to apply some of this in your life. And so let's apply this whole decision-making process to the issue of marriage, since many of you are thinking that direction in the next 10 years or so. And so here's, here's the issue with marriage. Go to my next slide. In 1965, the average age for men for marriage was 22 and 20 years old 
for women. My parents were about that exact age when they got married in the uh, whatever year it was, a long, long time ago. 2002, which is the year before I got married, 2002 is when I got married. Uh, average age for men was 26 and 25 for women. We were 26, both of us, when we got married. So it holds true my family. So one generation later, it's been pushed back several years, I think partly because more and more people are going to school and getting more education, and so this delays the whole process, and so people are pursuing college and careers, but some of this is also a result of just not knowing how to find direction in life and understand God's will. In fact, I would say that um, for some of the young men in our culture, I would say this delay in marriage is a result of sin. I'll just call it what it is. And this is the most powerful quote, I think, that I'll show you this morning from the book that I read this past week. And here's what it says. There is nothing wrong with being single. It can be a gift from the Lord and a gift to the church. But when there is an overabundance of Christian singles who want to be married, this is a problem. And it's a problem I put squarely at the feet of young men whose immaturity, passivity, and indecision are pushing their hormones to the limits of self-control delaying the growing up process and forcing countless numbers of young women to spend lots of time and money pursuing their career when they'd rather be getting married and having children. Ouch. And it's true. I'm not, I don't say that in in jest. I say it accurately. I think it's true. My wife and I have had this conversation before. We have said things like this. You know, we know a lot of females that we'd like to find a husband for. I just don't know who I'd, met, who I'd sort of match them up with. I don't know. Now, the guys in the room here that are single, like, you're, you're not in that category, right? Like, I'm, I, I love you guys, and I'm not putting you in that category. But we, have, we know a lot of females that we would say, I want to find someone for them, right? But I don't know many guys that I want to say, I want to find a girl for that guy, right? This is not many out there that I would look at and say that about. And I think it's a result of this very thing that you see here. And so marriage is the one thing where people expect God to, like, write it in the sky for them. Like, God's just going to, you know, send a plane with smoke coming out of the tail and just write in the sky, like, who you're supposed to marry, and this is how it's going to go, go for you. So I want you to get, give you just a short guide um, of, of how to find God's will. This applies to uh, marriage, school, career, whatever the case might be. I think this applies to that, but I want to apply it to marriage this morning. So the first thing is... Looking for God's will, what do you do? You search the scriptures. You go to the scriptures first. So when it comes to marriage, think of it like this. If, if the kind of girl or the kind of guy you're looking at marrying, does it go directly against scripture? In other words, God says in scripture, one man, one woman for one lifetime. So, the Mormon polygamists out there have it wrong, right? Not multiple wives, one wife, right? And so that's number one. Secondly, Christians should marry Christians. And by that, I don't mean someone who just professes Christ, but I'm referring to someone who is actually following Christ. They've put their life in Christ's hands. They've surrendered their life to him. It's also not wise to marry when both are still really immature believers. And it's wrong to marry someone who's 
divorced if the divorce didn't take place on biblical grounds. And so first you search the scriptures, you start there, and if the person you're looking at marrying makes it past that grid, then you move on to the next thing, and it's get wise counsel. Get wise counsel. This means that you surround yourself with people that you can trust. This means that you, you ask people like your parents, hey, what do you think about this guy or about this girl? Ask your friends what they think. Um, what does your pastor think? What does your pastor think? Another question is um, that I would say is don't just ask for counsel once the ring is on the finger. Don't be like, here's my fiance. What do you think? You're like, well, it's kind of late for me to burst your bubble now and tell you that, you know, you guys shouldn't be getting married. Like, you've got to include people in the process all along the way. The third thing is pray. Pray. You've got to ask God for things like pure motives. God, give me pure motives. Make sure that you're not getting married for the wrong reasons, for just the way the person looks, just for their outgoing personality, just for money, just for fear of being single. Don't just pray for the right person, but pray to be the right person. And then lastly, at some point, if the person you're, you're thinking about marrying makes it past these things, at some point, you've got to make a decision. You've got to just make a decision. Now, I mentioned earlier that stirring up thing that I was talking about. There is an element to that. And there were people that I knew throughout my life that I thought, yeah, that girl's a godly girl. That, you know, that could possibly work. But there just wasn't the stirring in me that she was the one I should be pursuing. And so there is a mysterious element to it. But if you are walking with Christ and submitting to his sovereign and perfect will, at some point, God's going to stir you up to say, yeah, that's, that's who you're supposed to be pursuing. And God brought various elements into my life to have me pursue Courtney, my wife. And I'm thankful that he did that in my life. And, and so what I would say to you is this. Whatever I t- whenever I tell people this, I say, look, there are three words in Greek for love in the New Testament. One is phileo, which is where we get Philadelphia from. It's the city of brotherly love. This is like friendship love. This is friendship love. And so, yes, you have to ask the question, do I really love this person? And Are we friends? Do our personalities mesh well together? Do we have that kind of personality chemistry together? The second kind of love I talk about is, is eros, which is physical attraction. There does need to be a physical attraction to someone that you're going to marry. That has to be there. Eros love. And if those two things are there, because those are the two loves that you don't necessarily choose. Those do just kind of happen. But at some point, you need to choose to love this person unconditionally for the rest of your life. And that's agape love. That's unconditional love. And that's the love that Jesus Christ showed us on the cross. And that's the love that even if those other things change, right, as you age, as you get older, you're going to start to look kind of different, right? But it's that choice love now that says, you know, I'm choosing to love this person. And here's what's cool about that is that when you choose to agape someone unconditionally, those other things take care of themselves. They do. They really do. If you trust God in that, those other things sort themselves out. And so at some point in your life, you've got to make a decision and so I want you to ask the question this morning, what, in what areas of your life is God stirring you to where you think to yourself, I can't rest until 
I see these things happen. What's God leading you to do? At some point, you've got to make decisions. I want you to go ahead and discuss the last few questions at your table. Go ahead and discuss and pray when you're finished.